It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Thursday morning, the 14th of April. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Yesterday, the Ukrainian president made a rare address in English. Ukraine needs work on supplies. Vladimir Zelensky wanted everyone in the West to understand. He was asking for weapons for Ukraine. We need heavy artillery, armed vehicles, air defense systems and combat aircraft. Zelensky pleaded for weapons to allow Ukraine defend itself. Anything to repel Russian forces and stop their war crimes. Anything, he said, to fight off the Russians, but Zelensky specifically asked for these weapons of war. Artillery, 155mm. Artillery shells, 152mm. As many as possible. Multiple launch rocket systems. Grad Smersh, Tornado, or M142 HIMARS. Armored vehicles, APC, infantry, fighting vehicles, others, tanks, T-72 or similar tanks from the USA or Germany, air defense systems, S-300, BUG or Western equivalents, military aircraft, must-have. Ukraine needs these weapons, he said, to save millions of lives. To deblock our cities and save millions of Ukrainians as well as millions of Europeans. President Zelensky's impassionate plea was, he said, an appeal to the West for help to defend freedom. Freedom must be armed better than tyranny. Western countries have everything to make it happen. The final victory over the tyranny and the number of people saved depends on them. Arm Ukraine now to defend freedom. And yesterday, uh, the American president responded to the Ukrainian president saying as Russia prepares to intensify its attack in Donbass, the United States will continue to provide Ukraine with the capabilities to defend itself. Joe Biden promised the US will provide artillery systems, armoured personnel carriers and additional helicopters as part of a new 800 hundred million dollar military assistance package. Meanwhile, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney, is in Kyiv today to discuss Ukrainians' bid to join the European Union. He'll follow in the footsteps of Senator Timmy Dooley, who, along with his 
Party colleague Billy Keller, an MEP, travelled to the Ukraine earlier this week to Kiev, Irpin and Tabusha. Timmy Dooley has described the trip as sobering and joins us now. Good morning to you, Senator, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. You were invited uh, by the Vice President, I think, as uh, the Vice President of uh, the political grouping in Europe, uh, the Alliance of Liberals and Democrats. Uh, You've described your journey as sobering. Uh, Did you feel safe travelling to Ukraine? I felt safe, um, but undoubtedly when you're there, there is an eerie feeling, particularly uh, around Kiev. I had been in Lviv before, which is, you know, about an hour um, east of of, of Poland. Uh, On this occasion, we we, we went to Lviv, but then took a 10-hour train ride right into uh, the middle of of Kiev, which is in the heart of the country. Um, Very different atmosphere there. People aren't on the streets out of military activity, whilst the Russian soldiers haven't or, or, or at no point penetrated the city bounds. There is always a suspicion that some secret uh, Russian forces are, are have the potential to get in there. So there is a, there's a real eerie feeling around the place. And at night, the lights are off. Um, there's no activity. There's a curfew in place. Uh, so, so it's quite eerie uh, in, in that. But nothing mm. compares to what we saw when we went out to Irpin and Busha, where uh, the Russian forces have been forced back from uh, and just the level of devastation it's apocalyptic apocalyptic uh, in imagery um, just you know apartment buildings completely gutted bombed with every type of mortar and shell heavy artillery and right down to, to light artillery we saw cars that had been uh, just riddled with uh, rifle fire so this notion I suppose that Russia would like to perpetrate, and some of their apologists around the world are, are also parroting, that somehow uh, this is all a figment of the imagination of the Ukrainian government and uh, other sympathisers around the world, that somehow there hasn't been an attack on civilians and uh, innocent civilians uh, is not the case at all. Uh, there was no military installations in the area that we were in if homes were targeted and it wasn't it couldn't be presented as being accidental this was rifle fire uh, on on cars and on homes as well as the heavy uh, shelling so in my estimation and I think in the estimation of, of, of everybody that has seen it on the ground these are war crimes this was an attack on innocent civilians nothing whatsoever to do with military uh, installations and we heard it firsthand uh, the stories from those that hadn't managed to flee, how they watched their neighbours being shot on the street as they ran from their homes, how they saw their homes burned out, um, how they saw even in advance of the homes being burnt, uh, they were gutted uh, and looted uh, by the Russian soldiers, uh, stealing from them some, whatever little valuable possessions they might have and loading them up before they, before they shot the people and, and burnt the homes. We then were taken to the site of a church, and this was probably the most harrowing because we, we saw where uh, a local priest and a community had attempted uh, to bury the bodies of those that had been left strewn around. Um, and they had done that just to prevent them being scavenged by wild animals, etc., uh, further um, destruction of bodies. So they, they, they buried them in, in temporary graves and, you know, in, in body bags where they had body bags and, and some were just. Uh, buried in, in, in the most inhumane way without without a body bag even. Um, but the crime scene investigators from the international community were in excavating those graves and attempting the difficult process now 
uh, of trying to identify who they were um, and what and, and how they died. Mm-hmm. And that will form part of, one would hope, a point at some you know, part of an investigation, part of a, a trial, you would hope, against some of the senior people in Russian regime. Um, to, to hold them responsible for, for the war crimes that they have committed. Indeed, we've heard uh, these reports of mass graves and carpets yeah. of bodies. Yeah. Uh, was there evidence of that uh, when you were there? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we saw probably 40, 50 bodies being excavated um, and, there, and the work was continuing. You could see the ground, the ground was soft. There's often a misconception about the mass graves. Mass graves were constructed... Um, by the local community as soon as the, 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 the Russians moved on to the next area in an effort to protect the dead bodies uh, from further, uh, you know, destruction, either from wild animals or, or from the, the, the performance of, of the military. So they were they were somewhat protected in the short term. Mm. Uh, and taking their sanitary con- considerations uh, as well to stop Absol- the spread of disease and that type of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Um, and now the, the sort of unearthing of that is to give them a proper burial uh, and hopefully give them back to their, give these bodies back to their families so that they can have some uh, dignity in, in, in burial and that there is uh, some marked grave that, 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 that loved ones and families know where, 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 where their relation or their loved one uh, is buried. So it, it really is harrowing to observe, but my God, how harrowing it is for the people that have the job of, of, um, of, of, of unearthing these bodies on a daily basis. Mm. I think we followed up afterwards. I think in, in the site that, that we saw being opened up, there was uh, about 150 uh, that were ultimately um, taken from that site. And we were told, but didn't see, uh, of a number of others, I think there will be upwards of at, at least 600 in that small area uh, that have been you know, temporarily buried. It must have been a difficult journey for you, but at the same time, you must have been asking yourself, how do they do it? Uh, did you manage to answer that question? Uh, I suppose what I what, what I was taken by was the the resilience of those that we met who were trying to make their way back into this zone. Um, that's heartbreaking to see, you know, an elderly couple make their way back into the burnt out shell of what was their home for many years, and they're just wondering, will that apartment complex be rebuilt? They certainly want to see it rebuilt. They want to live in that area, and I was also taken by what I suppose might be referred to locally as we would say the county council workers but the local authority workers were back cleaning the streets removing the rubble um, of burnt out military vehicles of, of the Russian Federation sweeping up and tidying up we even saw some people and it was it was quite a, a quite heartening to see but in, in an absolute devastated site there were two workers tending to a little area of shrubbery that hadn't been uh, one of the few little oasis that hadn't been tagged and they were kind of tending to that and attempting to, to straighten up plants again so there's great resilience within mm. the Ukrainian people they for sure want um, to repair and rebuild and even at the border we had been at the border six weeks ago when that mass exodus was taking place that's now down to a trickle um, and what was also heartening to see some Ukrainian women and children heading back um back across the, the, the Polish border uh, into the areas that have now been liberated. So there's a confidence there that, mm. that they can they can uh, push back the, the, the Russian Federation and there's a desire to go back and, and live in their own home country. Uh, they had a good quality of life. They had a good economy. They had a good country um, up to 45 or 6 days ago. 
Um, and it is, uh, it really is. Yeah. Devastated. Uh, really. how this has, has yeah. happened. But I mean, yeah. I think there's also, I mean, then we met with um, the Deputy Prime Minister, Olga Stefaniska, and uh, the Leader of Parliament, um, and a number of other senior members of Parliament. And they're very resolute and they're very strong in their demands, I suppose, requests, but, but stronger than that, demands from the rest of Europe uh, for help and support. And it, it, it's not it's not on a charitable basis. It's based on their taking, uh, they're taking the action to save the rest of Europe because uh, if we if we if we sit over here in, in, in sort of Western Europe and believe that that Russia will stop at Ukraine uh, if it gets its way is probably somewhat um, idealistic in thinking. People Am I right in thinking that you heard uh, Vladimir Zelensky's message? different to most of us uh, yesterday uh, because of your first-hand experience bearing witness uh, to what has been unleashed on the population and the infrastructure of Ukraine Uh, and that when he called for these weapons for the freedom of the people of Ukraine and the freedom of the people of all of Europe that that is something that you can identify with because of your experience. Absolutely. Um, when you look at the geography of the region and you just look at uh, how close Finland is, how close Estonia is, how close Lithuania is, how, how close so many countries, Poland and, and others. Poland is probably stronger because it has a strong military, but I, I spoke to colleagues in, in Estonia and they're really concerned um, as to where this stops because you've Belarusian right next door or close close by there as well. So there's there's real concern in that eastern part of Europe that if uh, Putin's regime succeeds in taking Ukraine in its entirety, uh, then what next? Um, No one in the Western world, including the Americans who have the best of intelligence, ever expected uh, that this um, invasion would have taken place. There was an expectation that there may have been an intensification of activity around Crimea, the Donbass region, and along that uh, eastern flank with Russia, uh, around Mariupol and into the Black Sea. But, But the, the best intelligence in the world didn't think that Putin would do this. So there's 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 a belief, rightly or wrongly, uh, that Putin has become mm. completely unhinged. You saw and, terrible uh, things, Senator Timmy Dooley and Boucher, and you saw terrible things in Irpin, which by all accounts was as bad in terms of the atrocities uh, that had been carried out. We heard a, a remarkable story of a, a man uh, give his first-hand witness testimony to the Guardian newspaper a couple of weeks ago when he managed to get out of Boucher via Irpin uh, to his shock seeing bodies in cars uh, to get to Kiev where he couldn't believe uh, that things were relatively normal. I, I take it by the time you arrived things were somewhat better than they were a couple of weeks ago that you weren't looking at bodies in cars there were these mass graves that they were uncovering and trying to bring people to dignity and so on Uh, but it really has been an awful situation for people to live through Uh, and uh, when that man spoke uh, about the Russians arriving arriving and seeing the eyes of uh, the troops as they came down in the helicopters before uh, they unleashed all of uh, the atrocities of war upon a civilised civilian population. Uh, I, I think many of us stopped in our, our tracks. What were people saying to you about when the Russians arrived and how they behaved when they were there? Yeah, they repeated it pretty much verbatim what you've, what you've already said. Um, they arrived 
they targeted the civilians, uh, they shot people on the street, they shot them in their cars, and then the heavier artillery came and bombed uh, the streets and the homes afterwards. But but not before the soldiers had looted the homes, had stolen possessions, um, even taking electrical goods and loading them onto some of their armoured uh, equipment. Um, and and then you know setting fire to those locations that that may that that hadn't already been fully destructed, and whilst I saw the bodies being taken from the graves that they had been temporarily buried in, we didn't see bodies on the street or in the cars, but we certainly saw the cars that were blown out uh, and bullet ridden. The, the streets were lined along that route from Bouja through Erpin and into uh, Kiev. The intention of the US or of the of the Russian military at the time was to follow that line right the way into Kiev and take the capital. Uh, but the Ukrainian uh, army blew up that interconnecting bridge between Erpin and Kiev, and that effectively became a battle line. Uh, and thankfully, uh, the Ukrainian army were able to hold the Russians uh, on, the, on the north uh, of, of that bridge. What we then did see, though, was that little temporary timber bridge that was sort of hastily constructed, and a bridge is, a, is an over... Uh, estimation of it. It was just some planks set across the water for which thousands of people from Irpin uh, and Bouja crossed over in order to seek safe refuge um, behind uh, or beyond the enemy line um, and back into Kiev. And, and that was really heartbreaking just to see little kids' toys dropped, uh, you know, the, the possessions of individuals that, that had obviously ran for cover. Some made it, some quite frankly didn't. Um, and as I said, we saw we saw their cars uh, bullet ridden. We saw you know the blood stains, um, the possessions just left where people people ran and, and uh, attempted to run and, and sadly didn't make it. Okay, and all of this, of course, is shaping your thinking. And you're saying that whatever can be done must be done to stop Russia. Does that mean uh, to bring it back to? kitchens uh, where people have the radio on uh, across the northeast uh, this morning does that mean that if uh, the price of gas increases by another 50 percent or if it's rationed and cut off that that uh, is what we should do if that's what's needed to be done to stop them or if the cost of petrol goes to two or three euro a litre or whatever is the case or if the americans continue to arm the Ukrainians uh, or NATO to get uh, involved? What are, you, what, what are your thoughts uh, uh, on how well, far the things. response should be? There's a couple of things, uh, and, and there's, there's, there's some things that are happening and there's some things that I think need to happen. The first thing is uh, Europe spends a um, billion euros a day on uh, Russian oil, gas and coal. That's a fact, and there's no doubt that that money is being used to fund this war on Ukraine and the potential for that to spread further. The longer the battle goes on um, and the longer that we as Europeans continue to give that money to Russia, then I think that the longer the war will go on because if it's being funded, it'll happen. So we should do without the oil, gas and coal then, should we? No, I don't Mm. think so. I I mean, it's it's a nuanced position in in this sense. We need energy for sure. Uh, I I think energy will will spike in price on and off. I think we should be prepared to take a short-term spike in the price of energy which we're taking in an effort to bring this to a conclusion. Because if we don't bring this to a conclusion, then we're going to have high energy prices for years. So it's not about um, just cutting off our nose to spite our face. It's saying, 
this is necessary in the short term to bring this aggression to an end because if it doesn't, we're going to have a, a, a continuation of the war, which will be a continuation of high energy prices with the uncertainty that it brings. So that's the first thing. And I think people are prepared and are looking at it because they're seeing this very significant spike in, in, in oil prices. We have to find alternative sources. We can't go without energy. Yes, we do need to pivot towards renewables like um, offshore wind uh, and, and various different other forms, whether it be the creation of, of hydrogen and the usage of that. But that's going to take a number of years and we need to, I think, uh, increase our ambition as a country uh, to generate more electricity offshore uh, and to generate a lot more hydrogen. That'll be a help in the medium term. The short term issue is we do need energy. Um, and that is a dependence on, on, on oil, gas and coal mm. from Russia. I think we've got to look outside uh, of the Russian Federation and look to the Middle East and to the States uh, to, to acquire a greater portion uh, of, of our energy. And I know that's being looked at at European level. But I also know that we have to do further, and I was taken by the comment of the Deputy Prime Minister who has responsibilities for integration of Ukraine into Europe, and she was mightily thankful uh, that your local minister, Thomas Byrne, had been in touch with her in recent weeks, uh, outlining very clearly that Ireland is, through the Taoiseach and the Minister for Foreign Affairs and the entire government, committed to um, intensifying negotiations and and getting Ukraine to what's referred to as the candidate status for joining the European Union. Um, and one of her comments was that, you know, they're looking to the big countries always for help, um, to the Poland's, to the French, to the Germans. And she said, out of the blue, uh, I get a call from Minister Byrne. And that was really heartening to think that a small country like Ireland um, would think so much of them uh, that they would help to lead the case at European Council level uh, to see Ukraine become part of the European Union. So we, 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 we're, as, as a small country, we're making a difference to the Ukrainian people. OK, well, look, thank you indeed uh, for telling us uh, about uh, your experience, your first-hand experience in uh, the war-torn country that is Ukraine, uh, your trip uh, to Kiev, to Irpin, and indeed to Busha, uh, and what you witnessed there and uh, how that's influencing your thinking now, for that matter, and... Thank you, as always, for joining us on the programme. That's uh, Fianna Fáil Senator Timmy Doody. Michael Reed on LMFM. Comments coming to us uh, this morning. Brendan Murr and Dundalk saying, after two years of not being able to go anywhere over Easter, the big escape starts in earnest today. People are going on Easter breaks, home and abroad. It's great for the hospitality industry. Oh, yes, the travel across the border for drink. Uh, rising costs of living will put on uh, the buck burner this weekend as people, men, and women get their hair done, their nails done and so on. Eat, drink and get takeaways celebrating Easter out in the pub or dancing Good Friday to Easter Monday go to Fairy House Tuesday morning come down to earth with a bang uh, had plenty of fun but no money left for the rest of the week as Charlie Hockey said we're living beyond our means how many will do this over the next five days asks Brendan in his message to us <laughs> interesting message at that thanks uh, Brendan uh, for taking the time to text that to us uh, Pete says uh, just listening uh, to Vladimir Zelensky's shopping list for weapons of mass destruction. He seems very up to date with the latest war arsenal for people in the street. It seems he's reading a script made from by NATO and the USA who are itching for a war with Russia. I didn't hear any tones of peace uh, uh, or uh, bringing in intermediaries uh, to meet both sides and to, to try and work out a ceasefire. No, 
Pete says, the war hawks don't want peace. They want a world war to destroy everything. So the elites in the dark government in the USA can then build a new world under their total control. Uh, James Androhada says supplying more weapons to Ukraine is only going to prolong the suffering of the people and indeed it'll eventually lead to suffering here as a byproduct of what's going on in Ukraine. We are all starting to feel the pinch. Putting more wood on the fire is not going to stop the fire, says James. Tom in Dundalk in touch with us and Tom says... What happens when Putin has completely destroyed Ukraine? Does he move on to another country? He seems to have no conscience whatsoever, killing so many innocent people. I wonder about what he's going to do next. He's not paying heed to what any other country thinks. The pictures of the bombed out buildings and burnt out homes are horrendous. They're being labelled war crimes, but possible punishment in the future is not much good for the people who are being tortured now if the military are being allowed to keep going and get away with it. Uh, it's one thing talking about doing something after the event uh, and I think uh, Tom's concern is for protecting people now. Thank you indeed. If you have been in touch, good to be getting uh, so many calls so early in the programme and we'd love to hear from you if you've got any thoughts uh, that you'd like to share with us uh, today. There's a, a lot of people thinking about what's happening in Sligo, of course. The murder of two men, Michael Snee, a 58-year-old, and Aidan Moffat, a 42-year-old. Uh, There is the fear that uh, these were homophobic-related murders and that a third uh, beating up of an individual was also homophobic-related. It is, of course, uh, now two murder investigations. Aidan Moffat, as I say, was 42 years of age. Uh, His good friend, Blonia Gaffney, has been speaking uh, to Niall Delaney on uh, the local radio station there, Ocean FM to think that this could be hate-related to somebody, you know, that you would never put hate in with his name yeah. and that somebody so dignified could have met such an undignified end is just, it's just beyond belief, you know. It's horrible. It really is just horrible, horrible, horrible. Just to type of fellow, I went back through some of the posts there um, when, I was, when I was reading through some of our previous WhatsApps and, you know, even just sending in pictures of books he was reading, you know, he was just, he was just a highly, highly intelligent likeable, caring, lovable type of a fella. And it's just shocking to think that something like this, something as horrific and as brutal as this can happen in County Sligo. It's just, doesn't bear thinking about. And, you know, all we can do is just think of the positive things about Aidan, think of how he, those who knew, those who he knew, will know, you know, to talk about the positivities um, and to try and put what happened to him behind because it's just unthinkable. Plonia was speaking to the Midwest Today programme on Ocean FM. Father Noel Rooney also spoke to Niall Delaney. I met him for the first time, I thought, in the village inn in Cartoon Point some years ago when he presented himself to me and introduced himself. And then he said to me, are you Noel Rooney? And I said, I am. He said, a long time ago, you carried me on your shoulders around the kitchen of my home in Listacall. So I said, you're from Listacall. And he said, I am. And I said, absolutely, I was curious in Lissacol way back in 81, 82. So one of these strange quirks of fate, I had the memory of uh, Aidan and his family from a previous life way back then. So it was strange and poignant as it turned out, because, of course, I just parked it in my memory. But when we heard sad events of uh, 
Monday evening and yesterday, it was just more poignant to think that I had that connection with him way back all those years. So I met him <coughs> regularly after that, always in the same place, in the village inn in Carterd, Seraisi. By and large, he was very chatty and friendly, but as I say, sometimes kept to himself and was quiet. That was my experience of him. It's only my experience. I, you know, it doesn't stand up to much analysis, but that's my immediate experience of him over the years since he came to live in Cartram Heights. I did mention it at Mass, obviously, without name. People were absolutely shocked, particularly people in in Cartram Heights and Cartram Bay. Um, I live in Cartram Point myself, so, I mean, it was just people were standing around gobsmacked. You know, I don't want to use the cliche, but things like this don't happen in Cartram Heights would be the general word, but sadly they did and they do, and that's the tragedy of it. Um, I, I saw people in tears, you know, in tears at the sadness of it. And as the day went on, as it became more and more horrendous, I think people became more and more upset and more saddened. And that's how we all feel at the moment. And I can, at the end of the day, it's his family we pray for and offer our support to and sympathies to. I have a memory of them, but it's obviously 40 years old. But nonetheless, you know, I would... Uh, at some point in the next next few days, try and get in touch with them. But um, it's just horrendous. I mean, there is no explanation, particularly as it has become, I don't know, more and more horrendous as more and more information came available. But it's just beyond belief. And it is Holy Week. And as I was saying yesterday, here's a family being crucified. So let's offer them our thoughts and our prayers. That's Father Noel Rooney speaking to Niall Delaney on Ocean FM. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. ADHD Ireland has uh, just published an investigation of suicidal behaviours and uh, self-harm in adults with ADHD in uh, this country. It was funded by the HSE with research carried out by UCD. Ken Kilbride is uh, the CEO of ADHD Ireland and on the line with us. And a very good morning to you. Ken, uh, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. As I, I say, your study uh, is to look at the suicidal behaviours of people with ADHD in Ireland, and in order to achieve this, the researchers spoke to some 136 people who have the condition. The shockings, or the findings are quite shocking, aren't they? Oh, the shockings are, are pretty horrific, to be honest. Um, obviously, just when we were going in to do the research, we thought you know, that, that, that there might be a problem there. Um, but really, we were all shocked by ourselves, the HSE and UCD. We were sort of shocked by the results that did come out. And you know, what the results are showing that you know, 20% of adults with ADHD have attempted suicide in their lifetime. Uh, 50% of all adults with ADHD have self-harmed in the past. Um, and 10% consider suicide as an option in the future. Um, so again, even just looking locally in the Loud area, um, there'd be about 3,000 adults. So that means, you know, um, with, with ADHD... And um, so again, you're looking at 300 people in the Loud area today who are, you know, considering suicide as an option going forward simply because they have ADHD. Okay, and the risk of suicide, uh, the researchers say, is four times higher in adults with ADHD, and uh, there's uh, a risk of between two and a two and a half times higher of attempted suicide and self harm. Uh, what is ADHD? So ADHD is what's called a neurodevelopmental condition. Uh, so it, it's different brain wiring and different neural pathways. So it stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Um, so there's three main behaviours associated with it. Uh, one is the attention deficit, uh, which is the inability to focus. Uh, then there's the impulsivity, um, which is, you know, um, I have to say it and I have to say it now. And then there's the um, hyperactivity, which is sort of on, on, like a motor 
um, on the go all the time. So when you get those three behaviours together, mm. um, it then comes a clinical diagnosis of ADHD. Okay, and it's interesting to note as well uh, that of the 136 people uh, who took part in the survey, 90% of them only received a diagnosis in adulthood. It quite often goes undiagnosed. Why is that the case? Well, again, ADHD, I mean, it was often assumed that, you know, and not to say you go out of it, but, um, you know, um, adults didn't have ADHD. There was something just existed for children. Um, and again, the common stereotypical view is, you know, it's a 10-year-old boy bouncing off the walls. Um, but we now know through, you know, um, lots of research in terms of around MRI work, um, ECGs, um, they're showing the, the way that the brain works. And um, so we now know from, and there's tons of international research out there that's showing that, you know, um, adults, particularly when they go into adulthood and having it undiagnosed and untreated, uh, can certainly have higher rates of, you know, things like marital breakdown, higher rates of unemployment. There'll be higher rates of um, other um, conditions like depression and anxiety, um, higher rates of substance misuse. Mm. And so, again, it's just we are finding it out. And what happens is, you know, you know uh, forgive me, you know, I'm a little bit older, but, you know, when I went to school, you know, if there's someone with ADHD, they were the class joker, the class clown, and mm. um, they didn't get diagnosed. So it's, um, there's a huge amount, I say, in Ireland in total, there's about 150,000 adults who are, probably have ADHD. But, you know, there's no figures on how many are actually diagnosed. We estimate it's 10%. And um, so there's a huge amount of undiagnosed, untreated adult ADHD in Ireland today. Right, yeah, that's uh, quite a, a lot of people. Uh, the official figures are, are somewhat lower, aren't they? Um, 3.4% of the adult population, uh, 5 to 7% of uh, the population of children. Uh, and I, I take it that as time goes on, uh, people grow out of it. I'm not sure if that's a way of putting it. Well, no, they don't actually. They, they, no? Just a little clarify, clarification yeah. on that point. Um, so as you're saying, you're born with ADHD, you'll, you'll die with ADHD. Right. Um, so again, you're looking at 5% of children, 3.4% of adults. Um, they haven't grown out of it. And what happens is they've learned to manage the condition to a particular point where they no longer meet what's called the clinical criteria for a diagnosis. Okay. But they still need to be managing it every day, so they don't meet the clinical criteria. Okay. And that takes effort, time, dedication, hard work, and it does put a strain on the person. Mm. So, you know, that's what we say, you know, you have it for life and it affects you across your life, but really just some people don't no longer meet the clinical criteria for it, but they still have ADHD. Okay. Now, uh, one of your objectives uh, in publishing uh, this research is to raise awareness about the risk that there is for people who have ADHD. We should mention that if uh, people... Uh, feel like they want to talk to somebody that they can contact uh, the Samaritans on 116123. That's 116123. Uh, you're also uh, hoping uh, to recognise potential predictors. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that and how you hope uh, to intervene uh, in crisis situations, if I can put it that way. Well, again, as you say, we know that, you know, that people with ADHD have, you know, um, um elevated areas in terms of, you know, unemployment, um, personal relationships, um, substance misuse, um, and particularly that there is a higher rate of anxiety and depression. Um, and we know from other surveys that, you know, that maybe 15 to 20% of everybody going through the mental health services with HSE in Ireland today probably has undiagnosed ADHD. Um, so what we would say, and, you know, and the HSE would say, um, is that, you know, if we can find those people going through the service earlier um, and give them the right treatment, well, then that obviously over a lifetime is going to reduce their um, the difficulties that they have um, and improve life outcomes. 
And so it's trying to find those things, you know, um, and how and where do you um, get to these people before they end up in the emergency departments of hospitals. Okay, and to seek help and to speak to people uh, if... uh you're feeling um, that uh, things aren't, aren't right. As I say, the Samaritans can be reached 24 hours a day on 116123. Ken, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us very this morning. Thank here. you very much. That's Ken Kilbride, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of ADHD Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, if you travel by bus, uh, there's good news uh, for you. If you're in Balbriggan, Drogheda, Dundalk or Navan, or indeed if you're travelling between towns because bus fares have been reduced. Uh, let's uh, speak now uh, to Stephen Kent, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Bus Erin. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, I take it people have already noticed this because the reductions came into play from Monday, didn't they? They did. They came in on Monday, Michael. It's a piece of good news because I guess everybody is hearing about increases out there and levels of inflation. So this was announced in February by the government as uh, as, as as one of the measures to ease cost of living. So um, from our perspective, you look, it's going to be 20% across a reduction in fares that was implemented on Monday. And it's across all of our subsidised bus services. So that's all of the bus services, as you say, there that are across the town services and, and moving then uh, on a number of commuter routes in from Navin and uh, Andrada and so on. So it's a, it's a great piece of news uh, for everybody. And at least um, it's the biggest increase that actually has been announced across the board nationally for affairs since 1946. So a very big mm. measure. OK, right. Well, that's uh, some amount of time. Uh, what does it mean in terms of income for bus Erin? Well, from our perspective, um, look, when you put in a 20% cut, if everything was to remain the same, it would probably be, uh, you know, it would probably reduce income by about 12 million across the remainder of the year. Uh, but that said, um, you know, it won't be as much as that because we expect that there will be great take up on this. And particularly when you can see the cost of fuel and running car costs, etc. Mm. I think this will, this will move more people uh, certainly to consider public transport in the short term. And the fares will make it very compelling. Okay, and I take it uh, it also will result in a higher subsidy from government. Well, that's exactly from the point of view. It, it is the government has, has taken on the risk through the National Transport Authority because we're contracted by the National Transport. And we run about two hundred and twenty routes, and about forty-two of them are in the uh, the, the, the loud need area that we would operate on their behalf. And so, yeah, we that revenue collection will be subsidised uh, in part through the National Transport Authority. Very good. Uh, it's a, a lot of money, £12 million, uh, but uh, as you say, it's an investment of sorts because if more people use the bus, there'll be more fares, albeit lower fares. What if it was to be completely free? Uh, because uh, there have been calls uh, for free public transport uh, and there are already models, which I'm sure you've been looking at. I think buses are free in Switzerland and the like. Yeah, look, I think I think to a large extent, if, if I if I look at it um, from the point of view of, I always believe, got a, personally, my own view at the moment is people put a value on something when when you have to pay something. So uh, you know, moving to to free, uh, I, to a large extent, if I look at the fares that are coming down here, twenty percent reduction, and if you use a leap card, and a lot of people are certainly in the in in the in the Loudmead area are using it, certainly transferring it. That'll give you an additional thirty percent discount. Now, on top of that, like going forward from the, uh, even from the student point of view, 
And from next month in May, which will be a further initiative, the government will be announcing a further initiative for people or young adults. These will be people under 24. There will be 50% on top of that. So people are going to be able to travel at fares that are very, very affordable. If you take a town service, uh, for instance, if you're if you're just travelling across Dundalk or Navan or Drogheda, you know that that was a cash fare of two euro. Mm. Uh, that now would leap. You know that's going to be comes down. The cash will come down to one sixty. Leap it's one ten, and actually, you know, if you're if you're um, a student, you're effectively paying fifty five cent. So you know that is a very very good value offering uh, to be to be given at this point. And I think there'll be massive take up based on that. Okay, are you expecting a, a busy weekend? Uh, traditionally, before COVID, the Easter weekend would have been uh, one of uh, the biggest weekends of uh, the year for people on the move in and out of uh, the country, and indeed around the country for that matter. It is, and we're seeing it right across. I mean, everybody is still recovering from COVID. We're we're typically uh, moving, particularly in your in, in again. When I look at loud me, probably at about eighty five percent of what it would have been pre COVID at the minute. But it's lifting every month, and all of the factors. We have a, a lot of free travel passengers who are completely reliant on our services operating. We've put in additional services during the pandemic, so a lot of the town services that would have been extended and Drogheda additional services were added in around Drada and Navan. All of those combined with new buses that are now more accessible and, and then the increase in the airport travel, all of those are combining to start lifting the boat. So uh, certainly, I shouldn't be saying lifting the boat, filling the bus. <laughs> and, uh, and that's good news for us at the moment and we can't get back. Okay. All right. As you say, it's been introduced by the Minister uh, for the Environment and Transport. uh, And uh, I think when it comes to Eamon Ryan, there's probably little difference between the two portfolios. uh, And uh, the idea is, uh, of course, uh, to cut down on uh, the uh, carbon, carbon, of course, uh, and uh, 20% off buses in all of the towns and between the towns. uh, The expressway continues at the old rate, I think. Uh, But I'm sure that'll be welcome news for a lot of people. And thank you indeed uh, for telling us about it this morning. Thank you very much, Thank Michael, you. That's and uh, to your listeners for supporting us. Okay, Thanks very that's, uh, much. Stephen Bye-bye. Kent, uh, the CEO of Busseron. Now, um, I think the Green Party are getting the blame for a, a lot of things. I, I don't think that news there that we've just heard about the bus fares coming down to save the environment and the planet and all of that uh, would have fed into the latest opinion poll because the Green Party has been suffering. They're down two points to just 3%. Uh, the upshot of that is on the coalition partners' part because Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have both seen increases. Fianna Fáil are up 3 to 23. Fine Gael are up 2 to 22. And you'd be wondering where all this is going to go now as well um, with news of uh, the turf ban, uh, which has really got a lot of people very upset. Uh, the Green Party is saying it's going ahead in September Leo Vratker told the Fine Gael party last night it's not. Uh, I'm not sure if that would feed into this poll rating for any of uh, the parties uh, or what you feel about it uh, because we'll be talking about this uh, in the next few minutes uh, because they say that the destruction of peatland bogs uh, is an environmental catastrophe and that's the thinking behind prohibiting the use of turf. Uh, but people are upset about it. Uh, and there's a lot of um, green measures or uh, environmentally friendly measures, if you like, uh, that are, are seen uh, to be 
coming in um, from the Green Party that could be feeding into all of this, uh, like the increase in carbon taxes and fuel and so on. Uh, and maybe that's why they're suffering. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But if you'd like to share your thoughts on our approach to the environment, we'd like to hear from you. Let's go back to the war. Uh, let's uh, hear from Sean Penn. I know that sounds odd. Uh, the actor Sean Penn, a big Hollywood star. Uh, he's also uh, the founder of a charity called CORE, which works in Ukraine. <clears throat> and he's spent a lot of time in Ukraine. Uh, he was in Ukraine uh, towards uh, the end of last year, making a, a documentary on Vladimir Zelensky. And he was in Ukraine on the 23rd of February. You may remember the war started on the 24th of February. Uh, he was there the day before and he was with uh, Vladimir Zelensky then. And he was with Vladimir Zelensky the day after. And he's been speaking to MSNBC's The Last Word. There are the privileges in life of seeing your children born and seeing them find happiness. And then there is this sort of macro that's hard to come by. And it was in that macro and personally that man, one of the great privileges that anybody could ever have. I had met with him for the first time face to face. We'd known each other over Zoom in preparation for the documentary. And then COVID made things difficult to travel. And uh, so then um, we were meeting for the first time in what turned out to be face-to-face and what turned out to be the day before the invasion. And we agreed to meet the next day. And by morning, the invasion was on. And we did meet the next day. And so to meet someone, and it's always, I think, important to say that my takeaway was that part of what makes him so, so particularly extraordinary is that in that courage, he's the face of so many Ukrainians. And yet, I, it's not conceivable that he could have known the day before. Would he really be able to rise up? And it's not conceivable, having met him during the invasion, that he was born for anything but to be able to rise up in this extraordinary way. I mean, this is leadership as we aspire to. This is, this is freedom of thought and, 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 and you know, tr- true leadership that mostly is just so moving and it's the kind of moving that we need to be able to get this country that's borderline you know a a kind of populist lap dance of the nation at this point we've got to get back on track together and realize that you know ukraine with all its diversity has a unity we've never seen in modern times with the challenge it has and if we can't do that, much less supply the military resources they need, because they'll, they'll fight the fight. They just need the resources. But if we can't show solidarity and acknowledge the inspiration that that is as a man, as a leader, as a nation that Ukraine has become, then I don't know where we fall in the legacy of life. Right, that's uh, the actor Sean Penn who heads up a charity called CORE which is working in Ukraine. He was speaking to MSNBC's The Last Word. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. LMFM. 
Now to the turf controversy. Patrick Hobin, Aintu leader and founder and TD for Mead West, issued a press release uh, this week saying that Eamon Ryan was giving two fingers to rural Ireland because of the plan to ban the sale and distribution of turf. Patrick Hobin is on the line and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. From what you've been hearing, uh, do you think Leo Bradker is giving the two fingers to Eamon Ryan? Well, there's definitely confusion in government ranks at this stage uh, because even in the last 20 minutes, there's been reports uh, that Leo Radker said that there's going to be a pause uh, in terms of a plan uh, to ban the sale and distribution of turf in rural areas, uh, while at the same time, the Green Party leader has said that it's, there's no pause and the plans will go ahead. And so we have two political parties seemingly at odds with each other in government at the moment, which is an incredible situation. Um, and really what they should have done is that they should have had this discussion uh, in the Cabinet and come to a decision uh, and then made this decision known instead of having this spat in public uh, at the moment. Mm. And all the while, you know, people living in rural areas, mostly people on, on low incomes uh, and mostly elderly people, um, are actually asking themselves, now, will they have the fuel necessary to keep their houses warm. And the fact that this is happening in the middle of an energy crisis is just absolutely stunning. You, you could not um, time this worse uh, in terms of people's needs. Um, and it shows you that the government is tone deaf when it comes to people's needs. I know from, from, from my clinics and my constituency offices that people are basically living from overdraft to overdraft at the moment because of the the price of fuel. Uh, People are going into debt. There's there's, there's two or three bills landing at the same time, you know, oil, gas, electricity, uh, well over a grand um, when you add them all together for for, for normal families. And they simply don't have that money uh, available. Uh, And now we're saying to people uh, who who cut uh, turf that they can't, fill their mother's shed with it or they can't distribute it to their uncle or their, or, or their aunt uh, at this moment. It's just mind-boggling how uh, incredibly out of tune the government is with the needs of rural Ireland. Do you not love the pal- planet? I do indeed and, and I do believe that there is uh, global warming. I do believe that uh, it's man-made global warming and I do certainly mm. believe that we need uh, to make serious changes to make sure that we save um, the, the, the world's from uh, increased uh, temperatures in future. But first of all, I would ask the, the minister, what volume of turf is actually uh, sold by neighbours to neighbours or uh, distributed amongst family members in this state? And then compare that with the level of commercial turf cutting, which is still actually happening in this state. Um, there's no information coming from the government on the volumes that we're talking about here. And I don't believe the volumes are, are, are significant. Um, what I would ask the government to do is to start going to those families who are cutting turf, you know, start talking to them about what's the best uh, replacement heating system that we can get for your house, something that's sustainable, that's affordable, that's an alternative to the turf that you're cutting at the moment, and start helping them transition uh, to a more sustainable energy. I'd be talking to those families about, you know, what can we do to help them retrofit their homes, to make their homes more energy efficient and warmer, Mm -hmm. and then cost less to actually heat. But they're they're not the conversations that are happening. This has been pushed by a Green Party that only seems to have TDs in cities, which is telling rural Ireland that no, you know, we're going to skip over the, the, the helpful stuff, 
the retrofitting and go straight to cutting your fuel source in future. And I think that's wrong. Right. Uh, but it, it really is bad for the environment, isn't it? Um, and uh, we need to be doing everything before we get to catastrophic consequences because of global warming. We do need to do everything um, if we can. There's absolutely mm. no doubt about it. But look look at this, for example. I've been calling for retrofitting of homes what, over the last... What's worse than turf, though? Well, well first of all, consider retrofitting of houses. And just look at the numbers that are being retrofitted at the moment. Uh, we had 18,000 homes that were retrofitted last year. Now, that's out of 1.6 million homes that exist in, mm. in, in the country. In the last 10 years, only 68 social... Uh, 68,000 social houses have been retrofitted in a whole period of 10 years. The numbers of homes being retrofitted, being made warmer, being, you know, reducing their bills with regards to electricity and, and oil is tiny compared to what needs to happen. Mm. So that's the low-hanging fruit. That's the helpful government policy that should be implemented to help people transition from carbon fuels. But the government are not focusing on that. The government are focusing again on causing pain, to be honest, to many, many families. And, um, you know, the, 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 it, it just is mind boggling at the moment that a lot of farmers to micro generate electricity mm. so that they, that can be fed into the, uh, the grid and they want to get a few quid for that micro generation. And yet, Michael, this country is the last country in Europe to provide a feed in tariff for micro-generation of electricity. But is there anything worse for the environment than turf? <clears throat> yeah, I would say this government is probably worse for the environment than turf, okay. uh, to be honest. Mm. And because if you look at the last 15 years... But if you burn turf, um, obviously you've the smoke that comes off it, it's very inefficient and it's worse than coal. But it's a lot worse than that because... Um, it's what you're doing to the bog, to the peatland. Uh, and apparently the peatlands would store thousands of tonnes of carbon. I think about 56, 57,000 tonnes of carbon. So when you cut the turf, you release the carbon into the atmosphere. So you have a double whammy. And then you have the triple whammy because you're talking about very special areas of conservation uh, which are unique to so many different species of animals, wildlife and fauna. Uh, And uh, indeed, uh, on top of that, they act like a sponge uh, because of the way that they hold the carbon. To cut it out and burn it is environmental vandalism, is it not? Well, well, first of all, we need to support rewilding. We support rewetting. We support the development of biodiversity on our bogs uh, in nature. Um, and we want to see a transition towards a more sustainable fuel system. And Gurley Bog, for example, in County Meath, if anybody's visited, it's a fantastic place to bring the family and where you get to actually see a bog returning to its natural state. And I would, I would encourage your listeners uh, to go to these bogs and see what's happening there. But we have to ask ourselves the question is, what is the level of impact that particular action has in relation to both the uh, biodiversity uh, both in relation to the particulates that are created that do cause difficulties for respiratory illnesses and climate change. Mm. And the the information that we have at the moment is that small-scale families harvesting an acre or a half an acre of a bog bank, using it for themselves and selling the excess onto families and friends in their neighbourhood, 
isn't the issue of largest impact in relation to uh, any of the negative environmental impacts. The issues of, of you know, commercial harvesting, where you have large companies, and this, right now we have commercial harvesting and an industrial scale happening on bogs and meat, and it's happening within the law, and nobody's seeking to stop it. So, you know, all I would say is, unfortunately, this government seems to focus on those who can least afford it. Older people, people living in rural areas, people who haven't had a chance or don't have the income to transition to a sustainable energy system. We don't have the time to transition. I mean, that's what the IPCC is saying. We have to act now. We have three years to act or the world uh, will well, uh, be in a very, very is, serious is, is, situation. Is, is, we'll be looking at cities sinking into the sea and all that. Michael, what I would say to you is that we need to bring people uh, along with us. Uh, for too long in this country, the government has taken a heavy hand when it comes to renewable energy. So, for, And we've had this conversation before. So, for example, we see industrial-sized wind turbines being built right up against homes uh, by big investment firms uh, from, from across the world with no impact or no benefits to local communities being imposed on those local communities. While in other countries like Germany, what they've done is they've made funds available for local communities to be able to get loans build their own turbines, enjoy the electricity that's created mm. and get the profit of the excess electricity that's sold into the grid. But how long... What happens how long, in, in how both long? scenarios, though, mm. just final point, in the Irish scenario, the government had turned the people against renewable energy being generated. In the German scenario, they've actually encouraged people want to be part of this transition to this new energy source. And again, I think this is the same thing that's happening here. But how long do we need? How long do we need? I mean, it was meant to end in 1999, wasn't it? And at the time, the government sought a a derogation, something we're hearing a lot about these days, from the EU Habitats Directive for 10 years. So that would have taken us up to 2009. Uh, We're, what, 13 years on from that? So we're 23 years on from when this should have stopped happening. The length of time it's necessary for this to transition is the same length of time it's necessary for the government to provide alternative, uh, reasonably priced, sustainable heating solutions for those homes. So, you know, the government can't come with a a heavy hammer and hammer people in relation to their heating sources, but not at the same time provide alternative solutions. And, you know, the government has shown no speed or energy in terms of uh, the retrofitting schemes or the bio, uh, the the micro-generation of electricity. But they seem to be speedy when it comes to keeping uh, families in trouble with regards to heating their homes. And even in relation of of, of this energy crisis, and that's the point I'm making here, Michael, Mm. you cannot separate this action by the government from the energy crisis that are hammering people right across the country. People are finding it nearly impossible to pay for their their oil, their gas, their electricity at the moment. And the government have been glacial in providing supports in relation to it. And, and, and even in the last week, they said, thankfully, that they're going to reduce that on gas and electricity. And I welcome that. You know, they've, they've come very slow to, to that, but they won't reduce the VAT on home heating oil. And, you know, if, if you go to Dublin, only about 6% of the population use home heating oil. But once you come out of Dublin into provincial towns like, like Navan and Drogheda and Dundalk, mm. the vast majority of, of people are actually using home heating oil to heat their homes. So do you think and that they should reduce home well, the, the, the VAT the, on the home go- heating oil? The government have used the excuse that the... Uh, you, the European Union won't mm. allow them to do it. Yeah. I don't believe that the the government have actually uh, 
uh, made a strong enough case to the European Union to do this. And I'll give you an example. Seven times between January and the start of uh, okay. March, I made a, the point to the government that they need to go to the European Union mm. and look for a derogation for a reduction in VAT on home heating oil. But you don't believe that the government should do it without that derogation, do you? I I believe at at, at this point, needs a derogation of the I'm sorry, your your phone broke up there. We didn't catch that last point. The the government needs, at the first point, to seek a derogation from the European Union in terms uh, of that on home heating oil. And, you know, the, the European Union can change this law. And the European Union needs to recognise the pain that people are in. But in lieu of that derogation, you don't believe that the government should reduce the VAT? Well, I, I do believe the government should be more policy uh, on, um, on this. I think okay. that the government's first responsibility is actually to the citizens of this country. And that, you know, we should, I believe, have sovereignty over issues such as VAT. OK, but um, we don't. Uh, and if you, yeah. if you go ahead without the derogation, you're going to make it more expensive in the long run and a lot more expensive because it'll go from 13 to 9% or whatever, which will bring down the price, but then back up to 23%. That's just the way it works. I understand, Michael, that the governments don't have the derogation now. But we're in the business of change. We're in the business of actually seeking the status quo to change so that the needs of people can be dealt with. This issue of a lack of derogation and the centralisation of VAT is actually embarrassing that this country has to go to Brussels to ask, can we reduce VAT on oil so a pensioner can actually heat their homes? It's, it, it's absolutely incredible that over the, the European um, uh, uh, treaties that we have signed up to, that we've given away that sovereignty. And what I'm saying is that the European Union also have a responsibility. They need to be able to have the, the necessary flexibility so people who are older and people on low income don't suffer fuel poverty in their own homes. Okay, I have to leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Founder and leader of AIM2, Patrick Tobin, who's a TD for Meath West. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, 13 humanitarian organisations have uh, come together to issue a statement condemning what they say are blatant violations of international humanitarian law in Ukraine. Uh, The NGOs in the statement say that they're shocked and disturbed by the level of humanitarian needs and mass civilian deaths, casualties and sexual violence against women and girls. One of the organisations in Involved is Plan International, which works to end child poverty and promote equality for girls across some 77 countries in the world. Julia Rockneen is head of programmes with Plan International Ireland and on the line. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. It's a, a very strong statement issued Uh, about the atrocities that are are taking place in Ukraine by 13 organisations that have a a lot of experience in this type of uh, area. But uh, I think we're seeing things in Ukraine uh, that have never been seen before. Uh, I don't know if we can say that. The the history of of war uh, across the world, you know, it, it seems never to come without... I suppose what is often described as sometimes collateral damage, but it's not just collateral, you know, it's the sometimes blatant targeting of, of civilians, of, of women, of children, um, as a means of, I suppose, carrying out a war. And uh, while we understand sometimes the conflict does happen, it's 
I suppose how that conflict is, is carried out and you know, the set in international law, there's the, the Geneva Conventions, um, kind of what's called the, the rules of war that set out how war, I suppose, should be should be carried out with the means of protecting civilians and innocent bystanders in a war. And there's, you know, there's this serious concern that um, their civilian, civilian infrastructure are, I suppose, it's hard to say whether targeted or not, you know, because you don't always see when these these happen. But what we're hearing is that you know a, a significant um, significant reports that you know the the war isn't being carried out in in what would be expected, um, and it's you know increasingly worrying. The the conflict has been protracted now at this stage. Um, mm-hmm. War crimes, genocide, mass graves, uh, blankets of corpses uh, being discovered. Uh, there's fear that chemical weapons have been used in Mariupol, but uh, I gather that it's uh, the fear of what might happen, uh, which could be unprecedented, uh, not just chemical and biological weapons, uh, but the potential for nuclear weapons, which has really complicated this situation. Well, this, like, there's, you know, the, the International Criminal Court is, is starting to do an investigation. So before we can make kind of definitive statements on, on a lot of these, there's a, there's a process that has to be gone through. But at the same time, we really urge the, the parties to the conflict to, you know, to demonstrate restraint in, in how, they're, how they're carrying out the, the war. Um, it's, it's increasingly difficult for, for humanitarian organizations to access the areas to, you know, to provide humanitarian assistance where like where, where the conflict is taking place or we're, we're working with the, the people who've been displaced primarily outside of outside of Ukraine into the, the neighboring countries and also displaced inside Ukraine you know where they've moved very much from from east to west in, in the country looking for I suppose safety and um, they've left their homes and they're um, in need of kind of basic assistance at the moment as well Okay. So it's difficult, okay. troubling times as well, you know, like nobody wants to see um, this type of conflict anywhere in the world, never mm. mind kind of um, kind of on, on the eastern side of Europe as well. Um, it's, it's something I think for the last 20 years, I suppose since the conflict in Yugoslavia, we haven't experienced, never thought we would again, you know, but, but it's going to do a wrong in that. Mm. Yugoslavia... Uh is uh, one place uh, where uh, many of us uh, were acutely aware of rape being used as a, a weapon of war. You've uh, teams working in Moldova, which is being overrun with uh, the uh, amount of people fleeing war and seeking refuge in uh, that country. What are you hearing from there uh, about uh, these accusations of rape of girls and women? As we've, we've teams in, in Moldova, Romania and Poland at the moment kind of working on the borders with, with refugees um, who are kind of crossing the border daily. Moldova, as you say, is, uh, I suppose it, it's, a, it's a small country. It's smaller than Ireland, you know, and per capita they've had the, the highest number of refugees coming from the Ukraine. And, you know, they don't have, to say, the, the wealth of resources that we do here in Ireland, you know, but they're going to great efforts to, to accommodate Ukrainian people as they arrive in um, to give them the basics um, kind of individual Moldovan families like we're, we're seeing here in Ireland you know they've been providing accommodation for 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 the refugees as they come into the country and you know they're how would you say not as well off as we are you know but they're, they're opening their homes um, 
providing food and assistance and the Moldovan government as well is trying to give, I suppose, money, um, social services, social support to the families that are hosting the Ukrainian as well so they are able to continue to do so, you know, because when when this starts, uh, you know, it's it's one thing to to be supporting families for, for a week or a month or two months, but as it drags on, it puts an increasing stress and pressure on, on, on your own house as well as you're you're given what you can too, so yeah. it's it's very difficult. Um, and like when when people are crossing, like we're seeing children with a lot of um, psychological stress. Um, they've been fleeing a, a conflict situation, seeing things um, that they probably should never see as children, and that while providing food and shelter is the immediate need as well to get early intervention to give psychological support to children as well who have seen these things as. It's very important because the, the scars on those issues they can last a long time, if if not forever as well. And just kind of the earlier you can intervene, the the better. Yeah, um, it's a very different world, I'm sure, in Moldova uh, than it is here because uh, we're looking into the Easter weekend and we're talking about uh, reaching capacity or going beyond capacity in terms of having the wherewithal to house refugees coming into this country. But they're long past. Uh, uh, capacity uh, going beyond capacity in Moldova and uh, there's very uh, little um, room for people there. How are they managing to cope? I suppose in, in, in some ways like over 400,000 uh, Ukrainian refugees have come into Moldova but probably three quarters of those have left Moldova again moving on to to, to the European Union too um, moving to different countries to families and, and connections that they have across Europe as well, but there's still probably 100,000 remaining in Moldova at the moment. And, and they, they cope kind of the same way, it's just you nearly have to, you know, especially when it's your neighbours uh, right across the border, um, that, that proximity as well, and there's a general sense of, of community, even though from different countries they speak very the same language in a lot of respects and, and similar languages too. Um, they, they kind of know each other as, as people, so really doing what they can. And, you know, it's it's a drain as time passes, you know, and gets harder to, to continue to support. And the, the Moldovan government is, you know, it's talking to to governments here in the EU as well and asking them to, to give them the support as well to be able to continue to do so um, as, as much as possible too, because, you know, it's it's financially... Um, the big challenge, you know, is they want to, you want, you want to keep that acceptance from, from from the Moldovan people, you know, without them feeling overwhelmed, feeling like it's it's gone on too much as well, and being mm. able to give them some financial support to ensure that the, the people staying with them can have food and, you know, like we see ourselves, the the, the heating bills, the energy bills, they go up rapidly as well when you have more people staying in your house and they're they're not getting cheaper. Um, here in Ireland, same as there in Moldova, you know, and those things all help a little bit so that the, the strain doesn't become become too much as well. But, you know, when you say at capacity, like capacity is a, a, like an elastic band in some ways, you know, just uh, you, you can find more resources when needed. And I think the Moldovan people are, are seeing that as well. You know, they weren't yeah. expecting this. They had no plans for this um, less than two months ago, you know, and all of a sudden they're, they're dealing with a situation they were not anticipating at all, but have been have been adapting in, in a way. I think that uh, we should be almost amazed at. 
The statement from Plan International and uh, the other signatories uh, to it uh, condemns uh, the attacks on civilians and public infrastructure but has special focus on children and how there should always be respect for children whether there's war or not and that they should be protected against all forms of indecent assault, killing, maiming, recruitment, use, sexual exploitation and sexual violence against girls, boys and adolescents who are at risk of suffering uh, the six grave violations against children in conflict. Uh, are you concerned that that is what children are experiencing in Ukraine at the hands of the Russians? Uh, yes, you know, uh, Frank, in any conflict, you know, we know from experience um, over time when a, when a conflict occurs and it's it's not from... Sometimes it's it's both sides in the conflict as things get more tense and ratcheted up and, you know, bitterness... Um, comes in there where kind of the the rules of war and the the conventions on on the rights of the child, the international humanitarian law. Um, it, it's not just about those in charge making decisions. That things happen at kind of an individual level that that, that they do get violated. And you know we know um, in every other conflict this is what happens, whether it's an isolated instance or or wider as well. And you know the longer the the conflict goes on, the more likely you are to, to see these things happening. And, you know, like it's a, it's a very um, commonsensical statement in that, you know, mm-hmm. children should be protected from, from all of these things. Um, but at the same time, we, we know in, in war, like it's, it increasingly happens and you need to very much keep highlighting these things, pushing these things. Um, mm-hmm. we, we really respect the work of, of the UN and the International Committee of the Red Cross as well for, for the work that they do in trying to ensure that there are not um, violations of international humanitarian law and the Geneva Conventions and that children and other vulnerable groups, civilians, are, are protected when when war is is happening. Um, but there's only so much that they can do as well. You know, they're 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 there when you're kind of in, in civilian vehicles as as civilians themselves nearly, and they're looking for the you know the protection of the the Red yeah. Cross symbols when 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 these things are happening out, but yeah. they they can't be yeah. everywhere all the time, well, and especially seen, when there's active conflict. We we've seen uh, that being ignored and fire on people with uh, the Red Cross, uh, but. Uh, it's a terrible situation for all. Uh, Plan International, obviously, working uh, with uh, young people uh, getting out uh, and, indeed, helping them to do that. Uh, thank you, indeed, uh, for joining us uh, this morning, Julta. Julta Rochneen, Head of Programmes with Plan International Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. We'll talk about online dating now with Michael McLaughlin of Youth Work Ireland. Good morning to you, Michael, and uh, thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, I suppose, unfortunately, what's prompting this conversation is the terrible reality of what's happened in Sligo and following uh, the two murders and uh, an attack on a third person Gardaí are advising anybody who's dating online to have a photograph of the person that they're going to meet, to tell their friends what they're intending to do and where they're going to go and they're also saying to be careful about what they eat and drink and it's better to see what you eat or drink being prepared before you do. Uh, Do you think that's the type of precaution that people take? 
I'd say a lot of people do. Uh, I think, you know, obviously not getting too much into details at recent events, but also learning from things that uh, we do assume that young people are dating more and that kind of thing. And, and certainly we've heard all, all that advice before. I was thinking about it in advance of this conversation. I'm not sure that we're putting that out as much as we should be and maybe something we need to think about. On the other hand, I think young people are quite experienced in dating because they're doing a lot of it just with the structure of society younger people tend to date more but maybe the lessons we have to learn uh, again are that everyone in society at all ages at all stages are, are probably dating with different you know, people can be single separated divorced coming back from abroad so it's not just about young people and so that's one thing I was reflecting on recently that I think mean, we have to do a lot of work with young people but it's a question for all of societies I think it's good regarding our, our giving advice and it probably needs to get a lot more prominent in, in everyday media and everyday discussions that we don't just think about this exclusively uh, a young person's issue. Mm. And I take it that a lot of people are dating on the internet, that they're using the internet to meet people. Yeah, this is, this is the norm in society, but again, particularly for young people. But again, I wonder, should we, should we be too presumptuous that this is all about younger people? I suppose online dating must be around now, what, 10, 10 15 years, and it gets, seems to get more and more common every year. So you're, you're getting on for a stage when maybe it's wouldn't say a majority, but certainly a substantial mm. number of, of people in society is the primary way, or certainly I think there, there are marriages and all that kind of thing that come from the online route now. And it's, there's also, you know, I think we're aware there's, there's niches too in terms of particular areas, in terms of sexuality and all that kind of thing. So it's a, it has completely exploded and it could get to the stage where there's many people that might be their only option because maybe they're in a remote area, they don't have the same level of uh, social networks. So again, the contrast with young people in large, you know, they'd be in college, they have a wide friends group, they might be able to meet people the old-fashioned way, traditionally, through, through friends and introductions, whereas other people, other types of people, maybe older, separated or whatever, mightn't have as many options like that, so they'll, they'll be mm. in the online space too, so it's okay. really, uh, where the focus should be. But I, I think what all of that means is that it's very, very safe. Uh, if so many people are doing it every day, all of the time. Uh, it has to be very, very safe. Uh, and there's exceptions to it. Uh, and it's those exceptions uh, that would be of concern and the reason to take these type of precautions. Yeah, I think that, I think we will to high-profile cases. There's been other ones in the past that we know of as well, you know, and very, very tragic ones. Uh, so it, it certainly happened. I, I suppose, on the other hand, given the, the, the popularity or the mainstream nature of it now, uh, you know, you're probably talking about hundreds of thousands of people. Like, so it's, it's unfortunately inevitable that you know these things happen. But there has to be caution. I think it's very good to say that the guardy uh, do this. I think other groups of society made me think about taking it on too. So it's not seen as some sort of niche thing. It's something that's more mainstream. Because if you know, certainly in the past, if people were going out socially to bars and clubs, people would say, "Look, well, you have to be safe." So there's no mm. difference here. We shouldn't. I think there might be still this bit of stigma or something there. You know, and, and that's maybe something that we have to. Mm, maybe so, but <laughs> at the same time, uh, if so many people are, are doing it, uh, it's uh, safe, predominantly speaking, uh, but with uh, exceptions, which is the case. I mean, if it, it didn't exist, it would be the same. If you went on, on a date, you could meet uh, somebody who ended up being dangerous. Uh, but most of the time, that wouldn't be the case, because at the end of whatever interaction takes place on the Internet, you're going to meet a human being. Uh, and some people are better than other people. Uh, but is it that people are too quick sometimes? Uh, would that be one of your concerns to decide to meet somebody is it I see a photograph like the person like the look of the person and uh, ask to meet up and they agree and then it's take it from there 
yeah, that would definitely be be the case. And I think there is a whole whole culture around online dating, which is kind of can be similar, but also so so, so different. But I think it's the same issue that this is very much. Uh, the mainstream now, as you say, you could meet someone in, in the real world and never have an online uh, connection and still there would be risk. So there's risk in all sorts of things in life, you know, be it driving, and we had this whole conversation about COVID. So it's all about how you understand risk. And I, I, there could never be any, there's very little risk in waiting a bit longer and doing things as people, people like each other and all that kind of thing. So there's never any harm in saying, I think I'll just wait a bit longer or maybe the next meeting or maybe we put off, uh, you know, that, that particular type of meeting in that particular type of place because it's a very important issue, of course, that meeting in public and in, in open. But then on the other hand, maybe not everybody can meet in public. I think that's kind of a, a, an issue that we need to tease out and certainly those who maybe feel for whatever reason they couldn't, uh, they'd have to be a lot more cautious in other ways. I mean, that, that's okay. the way you have to think about it. About the sort of, there's niche groups there who, who don't fit the mainstream. Okay, gives us all food for thought. Michael, thank you. Michael McLaughlin of Youth Work Ireland. So that's our programme for today and this week. Have an excellent Easter and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Tuesday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now, michael at lmfm.ie. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.